Welcome back to another episode of the podcast. On the last episode, we did a special recording of a live question and answer night that was recorded at Calvary Chapel Hastings. Uh, Unfortunately, on the night, we had many more questions that we were not able to get through. So today we're going to do another special episode of where I'm going to try and answer some of these questions. Obviously, these are not going to be live like they were in the last podcast, but they've been submitted. And so we'll try and just do some brief responses to them now. So let's start with our first question. The first one is, how should Christians feel about the Bible? Should we die for it? How should Christians feel about the Bible? Should we die for it? Okay, this is a great question. Obviously, I'm kind of inclined to start with the words from Psalm 119, verse 97, that says, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. In fact, the entire Psalm of 119 is all about loving the Word of God. And obviously, in the short answer, that should be how we feel about the Word of God. So to to maybe segue into the second part of that question, let me tell you a little story that that kind of illustrates both these principles. It's one that I love. It's, It's about what we call Codex Beritinus. Codex Beritinus. This is a 6th century codex. A codex is an early form of the Bible. It contains Matthew and Mark. That's all, all it contains. It's today housed in the National Archives of Albania. Now this is a, a very special codex. It's known as a royal codex. You see, a royal. there's only a handful of royal codexes that exist in the world today. A royal codex was written on vellum, and the vellum was then dyed purple. You see, purple obviously is the the colour associated with royalty, with emperors, with kings and queens. So this shows great respect for the Gospels, that they were written on vellum, that's animal skin, that was dyed purple. There's a story about C.H. Spurgeon, that he used to do something like this. Every week when his sermons uh, were finished, they would be transcribed for publishing. And he would then edit them before publishing and he'd make his amendments in a purple ink. I actually have one of these uh, manuscripts on my wall in my office. The Codex Beritanus was not written in purple ink, it was actually written in silver ink. So this is a beautiful, you can imagine a purple vellum with a silver ink. Even more amazing than this is that whenever the scribe would write what is known as a nomina sacra, that's a sacred name, one of the names of God, uh, a special scribal practice kind of existed where you wouldn't write the name of God, you would abbreviate it, and that became a, a nomina sacra. Now, in, in Beritanus, in this codex, they, they did this for God, for Lord, for Jesus, and for Christ, all these sacred names. When they did that, they would change their ink from silver, and they would write it in gold ink. So you can imagine how beautiful this manuscript is. It's, it's dyed purple vellum, silver ink, but yet the names of God are written in gold ink. You can just see the reverence that they have for the word of God. And also the fact that they included Jesus in the nominus, in the nominus sacras showed you that early Christianity fully believed in the deity of Christ. Now what's interesting about this, the story of this manuscript, during World War II, Hitler learned about this manuscript and he sought it it was a great treasure that he wanted to to find basically obviously a lot of the nazis they looted art from across europe he wanted to keep it for himself or destroy it we don't know at this time it was housed in a monastery in birat in albania and the nazi soldiers entered this monastery and they lined up the monks at gunpoint threatening to shoot them if they did not reveal its whereabouts and all the men deflected the soldiers queries and they were so convincing that the Nazi soldiers believed them and let them live. So they obviously made such a good case that they didn't know where it was that the soldiers didn't feel like they needed to, to shoot them. The next morning, the abbot of the monastery tells a funny story. He says that he was greeted in the morning by a line of monks 
outside his office wanting to confess their sins because they all knew where the manuscript was hidden and they'd lied about it. You see, this is interesting. They were willing to be shot in the head by Nazis rather than give up this precious treasure. You see, the Codex today is the number one treasure in Albania. They have it on the back of a coin and is registered with UNESCO as a world international world treasure. You see, this is, shows us something of the, uh, the admiration and the awe that the Word of God should fill us. Um, it says, doesn't it, in Psalm 119, let your word produce reverence for us, for God. Truly the Bible is a world treasure. The famous hymn writer John Newton, best known for his song Amazing Grace, he wrote another song, um, which was never really hugely popular, but it was found written in the front of his Bible. You can see this Bible today in the Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C. But the, the song is simply called Precious Bible, What a Treasure. And it starts with this, these, this first verse. It says, Precious Bible, what a treasure does the word of God afford. All I want for life or pleasure, food and medicine, shield and sword, let the world account me poor, because having this, I need no more. And that really says and shows us, I believe, how we should feel about the Word of God. There may be times, not so much in our history, but in history of the church, many people have died for the Word of God. And parts of the world today, many people still do. And that's why, more than anything, we should love it, we should obey it, we should search it out in our lives. We should try and have the same understanding of Jesus what he had. We must have a high view of scripture. You see, Jesus believed all the Old Testament was historical fact. He believed that the books were written by the men who bear their names. He believed in the divine inspiration and the human authorship of the Bible. And he believed it was trustworthy down to the very last letter. He declared that the scripture cannot be broken. He believed it to be truth. He believed it was vital for the Christian life, our bread, our food, our milk, our light. He believed in the full authority of the scripture and he believed no one should add or subtract to it. And he also rebuked people for their ignorance of it. So let us be a church that studies the word of God. Okay, so the next question. If God created everything, who created God? Now this is again, this is actually a very common question that we get from skeptics. It comes in many different forms. Who designed the designer? That was the, the sort of central argument that Richard Dawkins had for his God Delusion book back in 2006. It's a common question, but it's not a new question. Skeptics have been asking this for a long time. The, the famous atheist Bertrand Russell, in his 1927 essay, Why I'm Not a Christian, uh, he reflected on this question. He phrased it like this. He said, if we ask who made me, then we should also ask, who made God? Russell concluded, if everything must have a cause, then God must have a cause. You see, now this question actually arises as a response to the Christian argument for God. One of the arguments that Christians have typically made is that the universe must have a cause and it must be God. And you can see how the atheist sort of responds to that like Russell has here. And he says, well, if something has a cause, then what caused God? It's the same sort of argument. It, it's The Christian argument is an argument based on the existence of argument for the existence of God based on the law of causality. That's the principle of cause and effect, which is obviously one of the most established principles in logic and science. The whole of reality sort of operates under the law of causality. Now, if we were just to take the question, who, who made God? Or who created God? We could say that it's an illogical question. Philosophically, it doesn't work because it, it, it commits what we call a category error. It's like asking, what does the colour yellow smell like? 
yellow is not in the category of things that smell, and similarly God is not in the category of things that are created. He is the uncreated creator. So the question immediately in that form doesn't actually really work. However, let's be gracious to the questioner because I believe they're wanting us to go a little bit deeper like we saw in Russell's article there. If we were to phrase it in a slightly more sophisticated way, we'd say it like this. If the universe needs a cause, which is the Christian claim, then why doesn't God need a cause? The atheist question back. And then usually the answer would be, ah, oh, God doesn't need a cause. But then the, the, the atheist would phrase it like this. If God doesn't need a cause, then why should the universe need a cause? And that's their argument. So it's an argument that is a response. It's given as a defeater to the Christian claim. Now, to be honest, it's, it's more just we're not listening to each other. We're confusing our terms. The Christian response should be to carefully frame the argument because we're not say, it's not how Russell said it. It's not everything needs a cause. We're not saying that everything needs a cause. What we are saying is that everything that begins to exist needs a cause. Everything that is within the physical universe needs a cause. So this is how we need to frame our argument. This is how we should frame it. The universe had a beginning. This is confirmed by modern cosmology. The universe had a beginning. Therefore, the universe needs a cause. That's the argument. Therefore, the universe needs a cause. Now, obviously, we're making an argument, you know, from nothing, nothing comes, a famous dictum. Science really would collapse without the, the rule of cause and effect. But what we're claiming is that God, being outside of the physical universe, even outside of time itself, he has no beginning. He is the one that inhabits eternity, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. These are basically ways that the Bible is describing God to make the point that he is eternal. Therefore, he actually does require no cause because he never begun to exist. You see, so when we make the argument about the universe needing a cause, that is quite right because we know the universe began to exist. But only things that begin to exist need a cause. So we are correct in saying that God does not need a cause. And the argument is still strong because when we look at the cosmological argument and it you know, points to this cause who created the universe, we can, we can infer a number of things about this cause. Firstly, the cause had to be outside of the physical universe, transcendent. Secondly, the cause had to be immensely powerful. Thirdly, the cause had to be super intelligent and on and on. There's, there's a whole list of things. And when we look at all these ways that we need the cause to act, they give a very good description of the God of the Bible. And obviously apologists will then go further and, and make the claim that this cause is in fact the God of the Bible. So I believe the argument still stands and the who made God question can, can be responded to like that. Okay, next question. How can you just believe what is written in the Bible, yet not believe people who claim to have seen aliens? How can you just believe what is written in the Bible, yet not believe people who claim to have seen aliens? I think what this question is getting at is that obviously Christians believe in, in you know, things like angels and some of the more supernatural elements that we find in the Bible on the basis of the Bible and to the to the skeptic that can seem maybe like we've got two standards because when another person comes to us and claims to have seen aliens we're usually and rightfully very skeptical. And they're obviously saying, so why are you sceptical of one claim but not sceptical of the other? They both seem to be quite similar to me. Now that's the question. I believe that's what's you know, behind the question there. Now, it, this is an interesting question. I had to think a little bit about how I would respond to this. I'd probably answer really that the two things, one, belief in the truth claim of the Bible, and two, believing someone's personal account about aliens, I'd say these are not comparable. It's actually, uh, the question sort of creates a false dilemma with what, the way it phrases this. You see, one is a completely subjective description 
of an experience that happened to one person. It's really very hard to ascertain if there's anything that we could say is true about the story. There's no, it's not even a larger narrative for that story to fit into. Believing in the Bible is not like that. You see, the Bible reveals an entire worldview, a total picture of reality that can be corroborated in multiple different ways. You see, firstly, the Bible presents what we would call a supernatural worldview. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You see, if you believe that, then you, you won't have any, you know, believe the first verse of the Bible, you shouldn't really have any problem believing the rest of the Bible. It presents a supernatural worldview, therefore we should expect supernatural things within the world. That's one reason. So that it does present a larger narrative that makes the belief structure plausible. Second, I'd say the Bible is a book of history. You see, it tells the story of a God who interacts with his people on earth, who actually came to this earth and interacted with it. A God who is in charge of the nations, a God who actually formed a nation for his purposes on this earth. Therefore, we should expect to see the fingerprints and evidence of this throughout the history of this earth. And I believe we do, in fact, see this historical corroboration. The, the field of biblical archaeology is huge. These nations are all over the world. You can, you know, There's many books that will outline all this history for you. We don't have that for the other, for the other, the subjective experience of aliens. We do have it for believing in the Bible. So these things are just totally different. And I would say third, um, Jesus Christ. We have the record of his life, his death and his resurrection. These things confirm the truth of the Bible. You see, we have over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament or in the Bible that talk about what this Messiah, this, what Jesus will be like when he comes. We have outside historical corroboration of his life and of his death from sources who were not Christians, from, from you know, Roman historians and Jewish historians. We have all of these things. And, you know, for the resurrection, we have obviously the existence of, of, a, of a church that started in Jerusalem from, with the Jews. There's all these sort of factors that have to be explained some way. And the Bible and the life of Jesus is, is the best way, you know, it has the most explanatory power when we look to interpret these things. All of these things show us that the two accounts are really not the same. And I'd probably add one more to that. Uh, it's, it's maybe slightly more subjective, but we can see the promises of Jesus fulfilled. You see millions and millions of people for the last 2000 years on every tribe, every tongue, every nation have had their lives changed by Jesus Christ, which is exactly what he promised to do. We can observe that around the world. So I think when you take all of these things together, Believing in the truth claims of the Bible and believing in Christianity, it's a very reasonable thing to do. So I would say that really means you can't equate belief with Christianity in the Bible with a belief in aliens that is generally just based on personal subjective experiences to individual people. Um, I'm not saying that these people don't have an experience. There probably are. There are some explanations for these sorts of things, but that's that's a different question. But I don't think the truth claim of believing the Bible and believing in aliens are, are comparable. Therefore, it's totally plausible to believe in one, not the other. And I think it's just a bit of a caricature of the Christian faith to say we just simply believe because it's in the Bible. That's how I'd answer that question. Right, let's do one more question now. Explain how Adam and Eve can be the father of mankind without the consequences of, sibling pro, of siblings procreating. So I think what this question is getting at is obviously, um, you know, it makes a correct uh, assessment that in the early commencement of a population, obviously relations between close relatives would have been essential. 
uh, particularly if you're talking about obviously taking the account of Adam and Eve in that in a straightforward manner, which I believe it is supposed to be interpreted in. Uh, the question obviously comes up with who who was Cain's wife is is another way that this question is is obviously framed quite a lot of the time. Now they're making the point that to marry siblings obviously is a big no-no today. It, it, you know you get genetic deformities when you do that. So what's the difference? How can we claim that this is what happened in the early stages of the human race? Now today, obviously, when close narratives um, marry, there's the increased likelihood of producing a child with deformities is, is huge. And this is really due to what we would call the increase in the genetic load. The genetic load is basically the, the, the accumulation of mutations that we get in the genome as it passes from generation to generation. You see, basically, we inherit our genes, our parents, from our you know, parents' DNA, you know, from our mother and also from our father. Now, during uh, the replication, the copying of DNA, often there are mistakes. We call these mutations, and they are copied. And when we get, obviously, DNA from the, our genes from our mother and from our father, Usually, these mistakes don't make a difference because the, we both have different mistakes at different places in the genome. So if there's a mistake in one area on, say, your father's side, it's usually compensated for by a healthy gene in the same place from the other parent. However, the problem is when close relatives marry, they're much more likely to inherit the same copying mistakes, and therefore there's no way to fix it. So you both get you get mistakes in the same areas, and, and this leads to many deformities and things like cystic fibrosis and, and many many things like that. And obviously that's why this is outlawed today, and it's extremely it's extremely dangerous. Now, you see, if we go forward in time. We can see that we obviously increase, we get more mutations in every generation. This is actually a good argument against the evolutionary worldview. But again, that's a different question. Now, in this case, if we extrapolate back, if we go back a generation, every generation we have less and less mutations, going back to a perfect genome. So we, let's just imagine that we extrapolate all the way back to that first couple, Adam and Eve. They were created perfect. Their genome was perfect. There would have been no danger in of deformities or copying mistakes because they were absolutely perfect, which is what the Bible des describes when it says, God, you know, God created everything very good in the beginning. So we extrapolate back and the issue of sibling procreation disappears for any, for any reason. Now, it wasn't until later in the, in the biblical narrative, the time of Moses, where enough uh, mutations accumulated in the genome that God now said, it's no longer acceptable to do that. And he outlawed it. And that's obviously the, the heritage that we have. So it was only for a very small period in the beginning of the human population that this was done, uh, which really would be needed in any uh, new population in that sense. But obviously the, the issues of why it was outlawed were not a problem in the early days of the human race. Um, there, there are many more technical articles you can read uh, about these subjects, but that, that's just a brief introduction to that question. Okay, well, you've enjoyed listening to some of these questions. They're good questions. I'd like to just encourage you to keep your questions coming in. You can go onto my website, thomasfretwell.com, and just click on the contact us, write a question in there if you want me to address anything in these podcasts. If you've enjoyed the podcast, I just, again, uh, urge you to please go onto iTunes or SoundCloud and leave us a review. This really helps us in the search rankings. And until next time, see you later. Thank you for listening. For more resources, please go to thomasfretwell.com.